following podcast is for parents, maybe not for kids. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 18th, the end of the pandemic edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer for Slate. I'm the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad to Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who is 13, and we live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I am a writer, contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column. They're very kind to have me after I fell for the worst troll ever last week uh, and had to resubmit my column. I am also the co-host of Slate's Wild and Wise evening chat show, and I am mom to Naima, who is just about eight years old, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom to three littles, Henry, who's eight, Oliver, who's six, and Teddy, who's four, and we live in Navarre, Florida. Welcome. Jamila, they love sending in the fake questions to Karen Feeding. Don't you sweat it. Remember the time someone sent in the plot of Little Women? (laughs) I do remember that. I do remember that. Once again, with the deep cut white folks stuff that I don't know about. I'm just kidding. (laughs) That's right. Always getting you. Someone sent the plot of Phantom Thread and you were like, what is this? On today's show, we are going to tackle the divide between sports obsessed kids and parents who, like our letter writer, have fallen out of love with sports. Then I'm going to sit down with Professor Emily Oster to talk about what this spring and summer are going to look like as we approach the end of COVID. How should we think about safety in families where some of us are vaccinated and others of us are not? You will not want to miss this conversation. On Slate Plus, we will be comparing the songs that would make up the soundtrack to our parenting. But let's start today not with triumphs and fails, but with a dilemma. I have a dilemma I would like Jamila and Elizabeth to weigh in on so that maybe I can spare myself the fail later on. Here's my dilemma. So you guys remember the olden days when people went out, right? Yes. Okay, so during those olden days, we had a rule with our kids, with Harper specifically, that you could wear makeup at home for fun, but you did not wear it out. Mm. You were not old enough to wear it out, we said. And you especially didn't wear it to school. So whatever, a little lip gloss is fine, but no like real makeup. And Harper did not like the rule. You know, she would put on like these immaculate faces and then she'd be very annoyed when you're like, wash it off. You have to go to softball practice. Wait, so how old was she when when this begins? She's been playing with makeup for years and has been annoyed that we've made her take it off for at least since fourth or fifth grade. Okay. But what we've told her for all those years is this is a thing for high school. When you're in high school, you can wear makeup to school. You can wear makeup out. That's your choice. But up till then, we do not want you to wear makeup out. It's a it's an at-home play thing. So then came COVID, as you all may recall. During the last year of quarantine, Harper has spent 45% of her free time watching makeup videos and perfecting her makeup game. She would like walk into the kitchen after an hour spent in her room with like beautiful, elaborate fish drawn on her face. Sometimes she would just come out with a very, very fancy or dramatic look. Sometimes she would just have a very subtle face on, but we never went anywhere. So it didn't matter. So we, she would just leave it on for a while and then it would get all smudged and then she would wipe it off and then she would go to bed. But this week, Harper is returning to school. Amazingly. It's hard to believe that such a day has ever come, but after 365 days exactly out of school, she is returning and she's definitely going to want to wear makeup because now she wears makeup every single day and it's an important part of her life. And we have set this rule years and years ago that makeup is for high school. 
So the dilemma is, should we break this rule that we set or should we stand by this rule and continue in our belief that makeup is a high school thing? Have you sat down and had a conversation with her about it? No, I'm having a conversation with you. (laughs) I think it's time to change the rule, given that there has been a change of stuff. But my rule, but of course, I, at this point, I think was at a Catholic school. So there were also rules like through middle school about makeup from the school. But a natural look was allowed. So as long as Mm -hmm. it didn't look like we had makeup on, we could wear makeup. And I almost wonder if maybe you're in that phase where like the dramatic stuff or or any kind of real expression with the makeup is maybe not appropriate, but she can do some natural stuff to make herself feel better. Because I mean, I think one of the appeals for makeup is that you like the way you look when you wear makeup. I'm not a big makeup person, but putting on some mascara does a huge thing for my own self-esteem. And so to be able to give your daughter that going to school in a time in which like she's been at home, now she's going back and like middle school anyway is kind of this awkward time. So can you give her the opportunity to make herself feel a little better or feel good about herself or the way she's presenting herself? I feel like a little lip gloss, a little mascara, if that's stuff she wants to do uh, and it makes her feel good. But that's the conversation is like, why do you want? to wear makeup to school? Like, why is that important to you? I don't know. Jamila, what do you think? One, I can't believe that I'm literally going through this with Naima. <laughs> right. Like, Aiden, that's why I Aiden thought you like were the expert I should talk to. thing, though. Clearly, <laughs> clearly I'm not. Because I, I think the big thing that we're, the big issue that we're having is that I do it. And so it then becomes, why can't I? So that's a little kid problem versus, you know, now that you've created the thing that they have in common, which is like, now I have this expectation, you yeah. know, and I've, I've seen myself in this way. I like seeing myself this way. Why can't I do that anymore? And so I co-sign the idea about it being natural makeup, you know, that you can do a little light blush, a, a little concealer, if you've got a pimple or maybe a, you know, a, um, tinted moisturizer. But um, that it's also, as Elizabeth said, incredibly important to get to the heart of like, what does makeup represent to you and why? And figuring out other ways to connect to whatever that is in a meaningful way. So if it represents some sort of deficiency or insecurity, then, you know, that's something that you all have to address. If it represents artistry, then what are the other ways that she can express this artistry, you know, on a day-to-day basis without it being on her face? So is it, you know, maybe taking some additional risks and choices around fashion and, and particularly around color, right? So one thing that can be really pleasing about putting together a good makeup look is, you know, the curation of the, you know, perfect brown on the eyes, which matches the, you know, pinkish taupe on the lip or whatever. Is that something she can be doing with the architecture of her outfits? If she is going to engage with makeup, period, at at an age where she's still a little bit young for it, it's incredibly important that she has a good skincare routine. And I think that's also something that is a pampering thing that feels like a womanly, you know, act Mm -hmm. that they can, you know, take pleasure and pride in. And so perhaps the rule should be, you know, you can do this light makeup look, you know, here are the things that you can wear. But if you are going to wear makeup to school, you have to adhere to your skincare routine, which means, you know, you're washing your face in the morning and, you know, 
you can get stuff that's mild and, and good for teen skin pretty easily, even if you don't, you know, Dan, I don't know that you know the ABCs of, of proper skin care, but it, it's not hard to lay it out where she has a little three-step routine yeah. that she has to, you know, abide by. She has to do it in morning and at night because if she's going to be a teenager wearing makeup, she's going to need to know to do those things sooner than later or else she's going to have some skin challenges. And so this is also, you know, adding that bit of responsibility to the fun or creativity or whatever it is that makeup uh, represents for her. I would not worry about Harper's skincare routine. (laughs) Not only does she have one. Yes. It takes for fucking ever. That's my girl. I was going to say too, I think that letting her experiments, you learn very quickly, like makeup is not great for sports. There are certain looks that are really fun to have at the house, but when you're at school all day, are totally different, right? Like, um, even Mm -hmm. just the way, like, rubbing your eye, like, all of that, and which kind of makeup you have, and learning some of that, I think, is a good way to do that with the natural makeup versus, like, obviously the fish on her face that smudges, you know, (laughs) would be a problem. I like the idea of, like, some other kind of expression, too. So if you're going to stick to the rule about no makeup, what about, like, giving her times where she can wear the makeup with her friend? You know, like, can she wear it if she's having people over to hang out? Can she wear it? Like, I think it's gotten so much complicated. Oh God, imagine having people over well, to hang right, out. Right, but I mean, that's, like, coming, right? And But now you have this thing where she, like, uses all her free time to do this makeup. Where is that line? So I, I feel like it's a good time to revisit the rule and redefine the rule that makes makes a little bit more sense. But I it needs to be in a conversation with Harper about what her expectations are and what she wants out of this, right? Why do we have the rule? All of us have a natural (laughs) agreement, basically, that makeup is something for older kids, that natural makeup is better than, like, outlandish or dramatic makeup. Why? Like, I don't – I'm trying to understand exactly what it comes from. Is it from, like, nervousness about sexualization that the makeup represents? Is it just about not wanting the kid to – to work too hard to be older than they actually are. What is the root of this rule that all of us seem to agree should be a rule, but I don't know why. I think a lot of it is it, everything that you named, right? I think the part that we should keep is the idea of rites of passage, you know, like being mature enough to handle and, and use something responsibly and using it responsibly means not intentionally using it to appear older, right? And so there's a child who just simply likes doing makeup and when they put on makeup, perhaps it makes them look, you know, a bit older or like someone who's attempting to look older and that's just a consequence of their hobby or interest. And then there's the kid, you know, me, um, who, well, I shouldn't even say it was necessarily me. It, it I thought of myself as mature and, and older and somebody who should be talking to older guys and then makeup was part of that what came with that but I liked makeup anyway so I can't say I was putting it on in hopes that it made me look 19 but it also was a tool in the kit of the 16 year old who wanted to be perceived as a 19 year old if that makes sense right I think our aversion to little girls and makeup is deeply connected to our our fear of their or or rather they're, you know, growing. It's always been there. We're afraid of their sexuality. Like we're afraid of that part of their lives, but there's a reason to be afraid of it at this time, because it's, it's not about so much our fear of what they will do with it, but what the world will do with it. And, And I think it's, 
unfortunate that we also still act like, you know, someone shouldn't be able to tell the difference between an 11 year old in makeup and a 17 or 18 year old, you know, um, that's preposterous, like nine times out of 10. And, and, and the 10th time when the kid opens their mouth and starts talking, you realize it's an 11 year old. But I do think it, it's good for us to, you know, that the makeup becomes a gradual thing, that if it's fully just for play at, at Naima's age, then middle school, you know, that's where you get to pick up your first couple of pieces. I think that's when I was first finally allowed to, uh, I was always scamming my mom and ordering me stuff from Avon. Like, oh, it's just a tinted lip gloss. <laughs> and I got it. And it's like a bright red lipstick, you know? <laughs> Baby steps. What is the makeup culture like at her yeah. school? Or what would it have been, you know, if, if they had not been out for a year? Like, are kids starting to show up to school in the full face of makeup? Or would she be the girl with the makeup? You know, that is a thing. I mean, I haven't seen any of these kids for a year. <laughs> but my memory is that by eighth grade, some girls are wearing some makeup but hardly anyone is going all out. Yeah. And so being the one who goes all out is, you know, it is a choice and it is an identity and those can be good things and they can also be uncomfortable things. And mm. I think that's also something that as somebody who stands out in rooms at times and is totally okay with that, there is, it's not always the experience that you want to have. And so it, it, it may be something that she considers that this will make her stand out. I think too, it's, it's okay to acknowledge that there's like a time and a place for particular looks. Like we, there are not a lot of professional women that go into work with their, you know, night out on the town night makeup. Um, and and this to me is very similar to that is like, well, when you're at school, a look that makes you feel good is great, but maybe one that grabs a lot of attention is not for the academics, but maybe it is okay. That's what I'm saying when she's going out with her friends or when she is going to activities or going to do something in which having that kind of makeup on is appropriate, right? And can be cared for, but also it is a situation in which asking for some attention is okay. Learning some of those boundaries are good now. And so that when you're in high school figuring out like, well, how much of a smoky eye do I want to do? The current youths have taken makeup to places that um, we just haven't. So I think that a lot of the stigma around like kind of a sexy look, you know, that girls might have had to deal with when we were coming up. And I say this as a person who that was my sisters always referred to my makeup as prom makeup, you know, that I was (laughs) um, for years. And this was like as an adult that I always looked like I was going to prom. But I, I think that for them, there's a lot less uh, assigned to it. But again, it, it, that does not mean that if you are the trendsetter, you know, in your school, you're the first one to show up with daily prom makeup might be a an uncomfortable throne to uh, foist your eyeliner uh, pencil upon. All right. Thank you both for this very good advice. Uh, as is the case with all mom and dad are fighting dilemmas, your advice is legally binding, so I will be following it. I'll come back with a full report next week um, when it turns out we had like an hour-long conversation. The end result was that I agreed that she can only wear makeup to school if it's the fish. You're right, right. Yeah. Well, this definitely ends either with that or tears, right? I mean, there's, right. there's or, or both. both. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's move on to the business. Slate podcast listeners, help us make a better slate.com by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be spinning our parenting playlists and talking about how we introduce music to our kids. Here's a little bit of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. 
we have always played Vitamin String Quartet, which is now like the soundtrack to um, Bridgerton. <laughs> and oh, so my. it's taken a whole new meaning. <laughs> to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero, zippo, nada, niente ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, plus you'll be supporting the work we do here on Mom and Dad are Fighting. So support the show, support us. It's only a one buck for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus. If you've been thinking, God, I need more Jamila in my life, as we all do, you are in luck. Every other Wednesday, Jamila and her bestie WBM are live at 8 o'clock p.m. on Wild and Wise Live with Slate Live. They talk about everything from race to sex to identity and modern life. To tune in live or to see previous episodes of Wild and Wise, go to Slate's Facebook page, our YouTube page, or just visit slate.com slash live. And hey, if you want all of our parenting stuff just collected up for you in a big bundle, like tied up in a bandana and, and put on a stick like an old-timey hobo and then delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for Slate's parenting newsletter. Besides all of that stuff served up on a silver platter, including every new mom and dad are fighting, all the Ask a Teachers, all the Cares and Feedings, and much, much more. Plus, I, I just will tell you a story each week about my life, my kids, uh, the disaster that is currently life in Arlington, Virginia. Sign up at slate.com slash parenting email. And if you are hungry to connect with more parents, join our parenting group on Facebook. It is very active. It is full of good advice. It is full of empathy, full of friendly faces, other parents going through the same shit as you. And it's moderated, so if anyone's a jerk, I kick them out. Just search for Slate Parenting on Facebook. All right, let's get into our listener question for this week. It's being read, as always, by the incroyable Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm the parent of three young children, and I'm looking for advice on how to handle my negative feelings towards sports fandom, especially pro and high-level amateur sports, as my kids start playing and watching sports themselves. I wasn't always a sports party pooper. I was a pro sports fan as a kid in the suburbs, lost interest during high school and college, flirted with college football and basketball during grad school, and maintained a casual fandom in adulthood. But I found that harder and harder. Watching concussion Russian roulette went from feeling merely stomach-turning to wrong. The NCAA is exploitative, FIFA self-dealing and corrupt, etc., And as I think back to my high school days, I can see that sports played a negative role in our social lives and social hierarchy. Basically, my feelings about the culture of sports have entirely swamped my ability to appreciate how beautiful and exciting sports and athleticism can be. These days, organized sports play almost no role in my life, but it's time to sign my four-year-old twins up for spring soccer, and I know that sports are coming back into my life. Can you remind me of the constructive or valuable aspects of being a sports fan? Since from the outside, it kind of looks like arbitrary tribalism and often bloodlust. If my kids do want to play sports, can you give advice on how to keep their experiences feeling like play and not an unpaid internship, which is what being on a serious sports team looks like now to me? Generally speaking, can you tell me how you square trying to be a good and ethical person with being a fan of big-time college and professional sports. Thank you. So 
I thought this question kind of had two parts. Like there's a piece about sports as entertainment and the ethics of that. And then this other about your kids playing sports. (laughs) And I'm going to start with that to say like, whoa, you are a long way off from this problem. Um, Your kids are still really young. And I think there's so many benefits initially to kids playing sports. And at that point, it's more of like a social club and a way to make friends and for your kids to make friends and to give your kids a chance to try something else out. And so I think the big goal here is just to enjoy recreational sports for kind of what they are and separate all of these things you feel about larger sports teams and 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 there are so many sports like this question specifically i think felt like it was talking more about like football baseball basketball your kind of larger team sports that are on tv that are um you know sort of hugely propped up by by colleges and by networks there are so many things to introduce your kids to from, you know, gymnastics, fencing, diving, all all of these snow sports. Like there are so many things that you can get your kids the opportunity to learn and then be excited for them when they're excited for something. And I think in terms of your children, you don't always get to pick what they're into. And I'm I mean, listen, I cannot hear about Pokemon cards anymore, but that's what they're into. And so that's what we do. And we support that because they're excited about it. And sports are kind of the same thing. If your kid really loves something and is really loving participating in it, then you go and you're a good parent about it. I think you still have young kids. If you don't want to watch sports or have sports watching be part of your family dynamic, that is perfectly acceptable at this age. Like you, you don't have to have any of that be part of how your family operates. So you can enjoy kind of this, the value of having your kids play these sports, playing for fun, playing intramurally without any of the kind of corporate or the way society has dealt with these sports and just enjoy it with your children because it is such a wonderful thing when they when they take to something henry really took to diving and he's so into it and he loves to practice it, like these moves around the house and watch diving and that is something like i can really get into because there is so much joy for him watching other people perform elizabeth is right that your your kids are four you're, you've got a solid six to seven years ahead of you where it's not actually hard at all for your kids to just do sports very casually and for it not to feel like an unpaid internship if you choose to make it that way. If you make sure that they play lots of different sports instead of just only focusing on one year round, if you um, make sure that you know, if you want to be the parent who does not push your kids on the travel team, as we we were those kinds of parents, that's fine. That's a totally legitimate choice. And you can until about age 11 or 12, it's it's just not that hard for your kids to have totally casual, fun sports experiences. It gets trickier after that, but that's a whole other set of issues, honestly, than the issues that you're worried about right now when your four-year-olds are about to you know sign up for spring soccer. Jamila, what do you think? I 100% agree on that. You have a long time to go before you have to really hand ring over what uh, what to do if and when your children decide to engage with sports. Um, to the other part of your question, uh, which is how do you reconcile being a decent person and supporting uh, college and professional athletics? 
when it comes to something that's as pervasive in our culture as sports, that's pretty difficult. It's something that does, even in its exploitation of players and surrounding communities, in some instances, provides a lot of joy and fulfillment and opportunity for a lot of people. Um, And so... I respect that. I mean, I'm morally completely opposed to college sports is the way, in the way they exist now. And I think maybe if I were a sports fan, college sports might be where I draw the line because these are unpaid employees, essentially. And so if that is a line that you want to draw in your house, you can draw that line. You know, you can say we watch, you know, professional sports because these athletes are compensated. We go to local games with high school students. We don't, you know, participate in college sports. And that's totally fine how you will describe these things to your children in the same way that most of us talk about our values and things that we believe in with our kids um, and leaving grace for the possibility that they will have their own feelings and their own values. And they may feel, you know, quite differently about sports and they may want to play college sports. And that's a bridge that you'll cross when you get to it. But I think that it's not for you to figure out how to, justify or or make this morally correct for you because it isn't morally correct for you and it doesn't have to be. Yeah. As someone who has gone through a cycle of fandom that I think very closely resembles this letter writers, I think Jamila's point about your ability as the consumer to make those decisions based on levels of exploitation that you see in these structures is right on. You have that power within your household to make those decisions for now. You have the power to discuss and negotiate those decisions with your kids as they get older and they develop their own passions and likes. And you have the ability, if as this letter sort of suggests to me, you feel a little bit of a lack in your life from the sports fandom that you once sort of more passionately embraced if you feel a lack of that kind of beauty and athleticism in your viewing diet or in your personal uh, playing experience, there are a lot of opportunities to fulfill that out there that don't subject you to FIFA or, uh, or the NCAA or the NFL. I do think that as Elizabeth has noted, there are a million sports out there that are no more corrupt in their structures than the average Hollywood movie or TV show or food you eat or clothing you wear, which is to say they're somewhat corrupt, but in a way that most of us have made, have made peace with. And there's no reason that Henry can't be watching diving and, and have a great time without Elizabeth, you know, freaking out about whatever it is that the U S diving association is doing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This part of the podcast has not been vetted by lawyers. Anyway, I feel like this letter writer would do well to find some of those sports to reintroduce that beauty and athleticism into his or her life and then see what happens when you start to introduce some of these non-gigantic, non-incredibly corrupt sports into the greater lives of you and your children while your children just go ahead and play soccer because that's totally fine. Well. Putting your children and exposing them to sports as a activity, I think, is important, like having them try out some different activities and see what's out there. Consuming them as a hobby or as a form of entertainment is not like a necessity. And so you don't have to feel compelled to do any of this. And Jamila, I think you're right, too, that having the 
conversation about why big sports are a problem, why college sports, like as those come up and as those are in your life, have those conversations so they know where you where you are on that. And then they, you know, are in a position to evaluate that as in their lives and as sports kind of come into their life. Yeah, there are values that you yeah. share with your kids the same as all the other values. That was really well said. Um, I will say that there's one sport that every family should watch together, which is, of course, competitive cornhole, <laughs> which you can find on like, it's like on Fox Sports 7 or something. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely absurd. I can't watch enough of it and every family would be made happier. I highly recommend Dutch canal jumping. <laughs> they literally put a pole in a canal and swing themselves over and it's hysterical. I, it's just like farmers in a field. I don't think there's any organization to be mad at um ridiculous and fun <laughs> and i don't there's no commentators available right they either make the canal or they don't make the canal <laughs> right lots of options out there all right thank you letter writer uh, we appreciate you writing in um overall our uh our advice is relax buddy it's going to be okay if your kids end up really loving soccer we actually had a great conversation about raising athletes when you yourself are not sporty earlier this year with the one, the only soccer legend, Abby Wambach. We'll link to that episode in the show notes. Uh, if you would like us to tell you to relax, drop us an email at slate.com uh, or leave a question in the Slate Parenting Facebook group. We'll be happy to pluck it from the group and answer it here on the show. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, moving on. So it appears we are in the long, long final act of the pandemic. Cases are going down. Grandparents are getting vaccinated. Kids are returning to school. At least my kids are. Uh, over the next few months, we're going to be once again recalculating our perceived risks basically on a daily basis as things change for us and for our kids. So I'm very, very happy to have on the show Emily Oster, the data oracle of pandemic parenting. She's a professor of economics at Brown. She's the author of the Parent Data series of books, the third of which, The Family Firm, is coming out in August. Her newsletter has been a must-read for pretty much every parent I know over the past year. So welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me, Dan. Nice to see you. Good to have you here. So um, you, we've been republishing a bunch of your newsletter stories on Slate, and there's one of them in particular that I wanted to jump on, um, where you start talking about what the spring and the summer are likely to be like with the new CDC guidance that we're seeing. So let's start with the spring, and then we'll get to the, the glorious summer to come. So last week, the CDC released these new guidelines for interactions, particularly between vaccinated and non-vaccinated people. So what does that guidance mean for families where... For example, grandma and grandpa have gotten the shot, but mom and dad and kids have not gotten the shot. So the CDC, you know, I think went in this sort of 
pretty good intermediate space here and said that when the high risk people, the grandparents are, are vaccinated, they should feel comfortable getting together uh, unmasked inside with the, the sort of unvaccinated people, assuming that that second group is low risk. So assuming you have low risk parents, you have low risk kids, nobody's got immune compromised issues, uh, that that kind of get together can happen and can happen in kind of a, a normal way. Like you can hug the grandparents, all that kind of stuff. You don't necessarily have to do a bunch of quarantining before and after. It can just be like seeing them like we used to. Just regular, you know, 14-day quarantine. You know, you should wash your hands, stuff like that. Sure. I mean, we should probably be doing that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for those of us who have been sort of waiting for guidance like this from the CDC, I think we've felt like it's been a long time coming. And I'm sure there are versions of it we could have imagined that would be like even more uh, lenient, but when you say that you feel like they sort of hit the right middle ground, like where do you think that's coming from? And is there some version of these guidelines that could have been much stricter that, that you think would have been unnecessarily so? The CDC has been quite cautious about sort of giving permission for vaccinated people to do stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the messaging has been sort of like, okay, when you're vaccinated, you're, you know, you're protected, but we don't know if other people are protected. And I think for me, that's been a little bit frustrating because basically every piece of data that we have had and everything we know about how vaccines work has suggested that the reduction in risk of transmission has got to be very high. You know, is it 100%? Like, no, it's not 100%. But there was some of this messaging early on that sort of sounded like people thought it was zero. You know, I think a lot of people got this idea, well, just because I'm vaccinated doesn't mean there's any, you know, less risk that I would transmit to you. I could still be a super spreader even if I've had the vaccine. Exactly. And I think there's just like nothing that would make us think that was true. And so as we have gotten more data, I think this new guidance kind of embraces that idea that in fact, you know, people who are vaccinated, it's not completely out of the question that they could conceivably um, you know, spread the virus, but it's really, 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 really unlikely and hugely reduced from, from pre-vaccination. So I think this new guidance basically recognized that. There are definitely people who think they should have gone further and said, you know, look, once you're vaccinated, like, you know, take off your mask and lick people. Um, it's totally fine. And I think, you know, part of why they're only saying to lick your grandkids um, is, you know, I think there's some there's some worry that, um, that we're just, you know, we're, we're so close to having enough vaccines for kind of more like a herd immunity thing that you just want people to hold on a little bit more to not doing crazy stuff. A sharp rebuke to the anti-licking prudes of the CDC. <laughs> exactly. So spring break is coming. Uh, are you expecting to see a lot of family travel? And and how should we feel about that? How should we do that if we're the ones who are traveling? I think we will definitely see more family travel. I think we will. Um, I think we will certainly see more family travel that is in line with with the CDC. Um, I mean, I I can see that in the emails that I get and the people that I talk to every day. That you know, there's a lot of people who have waited basically a year to see grandparents, um, and you know, now a lot of those people are kind of through the second dose, and this is an opportunity to you know leave your kids with them and go um, do something with your spouse. And not with your children. I'm not saying we'd all want to do that. Oh my God. Some of us. The glory of what you just said would. is incredible. Yeah. I think we will see some some of that. And I think certainly sort of living inside the CDC guidelines is um, is reasonable. I think a lot of what people are wondering about is, you know, what is the mode of travel for that? You know, who travels to where and, and how should we think about that? And that's a place where the CDC kind of like dropped the ball a little bit in terms of actually providing people guidance. 
So they didn't, you know, they're still like, don't travel. But of course, you know, it's, it's not obvious. Why not based on the other things that they've said. And so I think that's, that's a little, people are fudging that a little bit. My kids are back in school this week. In addition to all the work you've been doing and talking about the data on family get togethers and things like that, you also, for much of this year, have spent a lot of time writing about schools and what we know about schools uh, and safety in schools. So, can you just give us a little update on what the latest research is telling us about safety in the school environment and about how nervous I should be about my kids spreading the virus uh, in a school? Yeah, I mean, I think our our data has sort of, in some ways, kept getting more reassuring. Um, and so we, you know, as we have learned more, it has continued to suggest that schools are low risk environments. You know, not to say that no one could ever get COVID in schools, but that it's not very common. It's not an environment in which we're seeing a lot of a lot of spread. I think the other thing we're learning more about over time is um, is the sort of directions of spread. So, you know, for example, there was a study last week which didn't get that much attention, but of schools in New York and, and transmissions in New York. And, you know, in the, in the cases where they could like identify an index case and the small number of what seemed like in-school transmissions, it was, you know, 80% of it involved the staff member. And so there was very little sort of student to student spread, which is both reassuring from the standpoint of the fact that teachers and staff are the higher risk group, but also as we sort of move into the spring, a lot of those people are being vaccinated. Right. So we're kind of looking at a place in the next you know, month or two, where actually almost all the teachers at least will have had an option to be vaccinated. Once you shut off that method, then you're really talking about a very low risk environment. The only kind of possibility is kid to kid spread. We know that's not happening much at all. If it does, those, you know, those kids are, are themselves very low risk. So I think you should feel good about it. Let's talk about the summer. When the time comes that most parents are vaccinated and the general population of adults is starting to see real vaccination. What is the argument for continuing to mask, for continuing to social distance? Um, You know, what is it purely just we are setting good examples? Is there real benefit that it's still going to give as we approach COVID zero or herd immunity? So really hard question. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, you know, I think we are going to need to move back to normal. And by normal, I mean, regular interactions with people and not wearing masks all the time and, you know, not constantly socially distanced. I mean, and, you know, I think if last June we had been where I think we will be this June in our, our kind of vaccination space, I think that would have been much easier. I think people would have been much more comfortable saying, okay, you know, great. We did it. it. We did it. It's over. Like I'm taking my mask off and, and having, and having a good time. I think because of, of, you know, really, I don't know, the trauma or the, however you would describe the last, you know, the last year, um, it's going to be a big step for people to take masks off. And so, you know, I think as we look to things like camps this summer, people have asked, you know, is my kid really going to have to wear a mask at camp? Like they didn't wear one last summer. And of course the disease situation this summer is likely to be much better. I think it's going to, we're still going to have a little bit of, of sort of residual feeling like we need those things, even if, Maybe the science isn't quite there. And so I'm not sure where we'll end up on that kind of stuff for the summer. I am curious about how normal summer will feel for kids particularly. And the camp question, I think, is a big one for a lot of people. Uh, I know you've said that you are sending your kids to camp. I'm anxious and desperate to send my kids to camp, but I keep getting these mixed messages from these camps, like several of the camps that my kids are supposed to go to, particularly the ones that are on college campuses, 
have very unexpectedly just in the last week announced that they're going all virtual again this summer for reasons that I don't fully understand and I'm still trying to figure out. And other camps, I think especially sort of more traditional overnight woodsy foresty camps seem basically unconcerned. If you are a parent with kids and you are sort of feeling that last little bit of nervousness, like, well, I'm going to be vaccinated, my parents are going to be vaccinated, but my kid isn't vaccinated and I don't know when they're going to get vaccinated. What does that mean to be in a summer where everyone's vaccinated except the kids? It's just writing about this. And I think that the frame that I, I, in some ways, have sort of suggested people put on this is, you know, the big goal of vaccines is to reduce serious illness and death. But, you know, that's what we're trying to reduce with our with our vaccination. We think about the effectiveness of vaccines. That's kind of the numbers we're citing. But people are so excited about the vaccines we have because, you know, they take this what for older adults is, you know, a huge risk of hospitalization and, and death and kind of reduced it by just really big reductions in risk. The thing is that your nine, 10 year old is already a vaccinated adult from those <laughs> standpoints. You know, I mean, it's like, it's true. The sort of, if you think about the reduction in, in hospitalization or death, death risk from being 10 rather than being 80, you know, it's 99.9%. It's 98%. It's, it's actually better than the Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, if you would be comfortable sending your, your, you know, the grandparents to camp, um, which, you know, what I don't I know if they would enjoy the kayaking, but swim lessons, perhaps if you would feel comfortable doing that, like that your kid, your kid is there. I'm hoping that may be a helpful way for people to sort of think about the relative risk for kids, because I think we've gotten in this space where it's like, okay, well, until my kids are vaccinated, I can't let them out, but well, they're already like, you're letting your grandparents out. Like, let your kids out. It is funny how, you know, I, in my experience, vaccination, vaccination campaigns essentially mean the virus itself is basically a non-factor in my life. I never have to think about it at all. And it's hard to imagine some future in which we basically never have to think about COVID at all, even if we still live in a world where sometimes people get very mild versions of COVID, uh, including possibly us or our kids. But Maybe it is just the trauma of the last year that makes me hard to think of COVID in the same way that I now think of other things that we get vaccinated for that haven't been eliminated from the earth. They just are really no longer a concern, like a dramatic concern. A lot of what I think is going on is this risk is so salient to us. We're thinking about it all the time that it's very hard to to kind of think about it as just like a regular risk, right. the way we think about a lot of other things, which may ultimately be comparable in the kind of risk space, right? So, so of course, COVID has been a much bigger deal. And for, for you know, older people, unvaccinated is a much higher risk than these other, these other things. But as it moves to be a smaller and smaller risk, it's going to take a really conscious, like mental shift to sort of move it into the bucket of, okay, like small things, which occasionally I think about, but I probably try not to worry about too much from this thing that's like front of mind all the time, I'm constantly worrying about. It's hard to shrink this to the right risk size in a sense. Right. We need to be able to think of COVID like grocery store sushi or something and like just be yeah. cool with that. You know, basically I remember what they told my kids when they left for spring break last year and they they had this little thing that was sort of like intended to be reassuring about, you know, their, their kids risk. And it was like, you know, this is a cold. Um, and of course it is a cold for kids. And, you know, ultimately with vaccines kind of made it cold for the rest of us. And like, we get those kind of a lot from our kids and other people. Weirdly, not this year. And maybe we'll all just end up wearing masks. 
<laughs> one of the things I think we'll be grappling with, you know, is there something more to learn about this is the, is the flu numbers from this year, right? So if you look at pediatric flu deaths, typically that's about 200 a year. This flu season, there was one wow. in the U.S., one pediatric flu death. Some combination of the masking and social distancing and, you know, school stuff that people did have, you know, totally changed the flu season. Now, it's probably not worth it, um, but are there any things that we did that really do move the needle that might be worth adopting a little bit in the in the future. All right, last question for you, and, and I'm so grateful for the time that you've given me, but this is really the most important question. When can I sing karaoke again? You know, man, two weeks after your second shot, you can go sing karaoke with your other vaccinated <laughs> All right. friends. Great, great to know. Living the dream. That's what I love to hear. Thank you. (laughs) Emily Oster, we're going to have a link to the newsletter on our show page. The new book comes out in August. The last two have been really great. The first one having to do with pregnancy. The second one having to do with infancy and early childhood. This third one is hitting what what stage? Kind of 5 to 12. 5 to 12. Early school years. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, This has been great. We love having you on the show. Thanks, Dan. We have come to the part of the show where each one of us individually offers to you, our listeners, a recommendation. We call this part of the show recommendations. Elizabeth, what do you have? Okay, you know, I have been on the search for some kind of game I can play with the younger members of the household that didn't drive me crazy, and I think I found it. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are many versions of this because I don't think this is maybe some kind of brand name, but this game is called Blink. It's a card game, and the cards have um, different shapes that are different colors and different numbers on every card. And basically the goal is to go as fast as you can to match the card in the center, either by shape or color, right? The way I play is it's a two player game, but I divide the deck in half. And then, you know, the two younger ones, the six and the four year old are a team and you're supposed to only hold three cards so they can each hold three. So they're playing six cards. I'm playing three cards. They win sometimes. I win sometimes. I don't have to pretend to go slower. I can go as fast as I need to go. And with them doubling up, it's super fun. I enjoy playing it. I feel like there's color matching, there's shape matching, there's number recognition. It like hits all my educational goals and I'm actually enjoying playing. So the the card game is called Blink. That's a great one. You're right that it is really good for that ever difficult to find competitive level where your kids win sometimes so they're not always pissed off, but you're not so bored out of your mind. There's another game that works on very similar game mechanics called Spot It that was a big Oh, yes, yes. When our kids were exactly your kid's age, um, that also works in a similar way. Also a great game. I played that with Henry, but I got to get that out for these two because it's it's fun to actually be playing with them and not like, oh, what are you holding? You know? Uh, Jamila, what about you? So I'm trying to curb my daily coffee habit. Um, I love uh, nut milks and soy milk, but I do not enjoy them with coffee. When I have coffee, I want cream or milk um, and usually something sweet in there. So I've taken up or I'm trying to get into uh, matcha and kombucha. Which like the latter to me, even the best kombucha kind of tastes like if you were like, say, at like IHOP and you had like ketchup for some like hash browns and jelly for like a biscuit or something and they touched each other. That's what kombucha tastes like to me. Like it's almost good for a minute. This and then this little sponsored by the American Kombucha Association. <laughs> the little ketchup flavor just wafts through <laughs> somehow. Um, but I'm getting through it. I know it's very good for you. And, and matcha has always, I'm so sorry, but to, it, it, everything that I've had with matcha and it just tastes like mm, there's green powder in here. 
And I don't know <laughs> what everyone else finds so pleasing about it. So I thought maybe I've smoked off that part of my palate or something. But I have found a matcha drink that I really enjoy. It's by Matcha Bar. And it's called Hustle Matcha Tea Lemonade. It's got caffeine in it. It tastes like lemonade. It doesn't taste like green powder. It's very good. And it gives me a little extra pep in my step. Uh, very nice. This week, I'm recommending um, a big an exciting uh, purchase that our family has finally made after months, maybe years of talking about it. Um, we made the big leap the other week and bought an e-bike. I've wanted one for a really, really long time. I finally ordered it so far. It has been exactly as great as I hoped it would be. So for those of you who don't know, uh, an, an electric assist bike and e-bike is it's basically a regular bike, but it just has a battery powered motor attached to it that gives you a boost whenever you pedal. So you can coast as long as you want, but as soon as you start pedaling, there's like, it's like a wind pushing you from behind and it can be a little boost if you're just riding around, or it can be like a big fucking boost. If you're going up a big hill ever since we got back from our trip, when we just loved riding around the Netherlands, we have complained endlessly at ad nauseum, I'm sure to everyone we know about how hard it is to replicate that experience in Arlington because it's just full of fucking giant hills. You can't go a block in any direction from our house without ascending just like a horrible back shattering hill that at the end of which you're like, well, this is terrible. I'm so sorry I ever took this bike out. But on an e-bike, you don't have to worry about the hills. You get on the e-bike, you start pedaling, you go up a steep hill and you're just pedaling away like you like granny on a bicycle. And then you're at the top of the hill and it didn't hurt. It was incredible. You just fly up the hill like magic. So I'm totally addicted. My goal for this spring and summer is that every trip of five miles or less during which I'm not intending to carry back like seven bags of groceries, I'm going to do on the e-bike. Just riding around this past weekend when it was 60 degrees made me just so incredibly happy about this coming spring and summer and what they're going to be like and how free I think I'm going to feel. It just made my weekend. So I'm really enjoying this e-bike. Uh, we got a, a Rad e-bike. R-A-D is the name of the brand. It's quite a popular brand due in part to the fact that they're just significantly cheaper than most other e-bikes, but it so far has been great and we have loved it a lot. And uh, if it, if you are in the market in your family for a way to get around your neighborhood in sort of the one to three mile radius, uh, a little bit faster and a little bit easier, especially if you have hills, I really recommend it. All right, that is it for our show. One last time, if you would like us to weigh in on your conundrums or dilemmas, email us slate.com post to the Sleep Parenting Facebook group, search for Sleep Parenting on Facebook.com. If you haven't already, please, for the love of God, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps us out when you do, and it helps you out in the grand scheme of things because you never miss an episode. And when you miss episodes, you get cranky when you don't have your stories. So subscribe. While you're there, rate and review the show as well. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.